So there they were. Many of them in the same room, facing the man who'd murdered their family members inside a historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. As they looked at the white assailant in front of them, his demeanor seemingly cold and unmoved. Perhaps they'd be excused if in his face they saw the face of slave owners who whipped and killed some of their ancestors in the same region in the 16 and 17 and 1800s. If in his face they saw the face of bigots in the Jim Crow era who'd beaten and lynched some of their ancestors in the same region up into the 1960s. And here they were in 2000. 15, in front of a man who killed their loved ones simply because they were black. Perhaps they'd be, they'd be justified in allowing the long history of hurt to flood their hearts and harbor bitterness and hatred for this man. But one by one, as they spoke, they chose a different path. I forgive you. Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the bond hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever Hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. May God have mercy on you, Felicia Sanders pleaded, who in that same shooting lost her 26-year-old son. We have no room for hating, the sister of another of the victims said. So we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. What could possibly make these people who lost so much, been hurt so much to forgive? And was their expression of forgiveness something specific to them or something we all must do? That's what we'll consider this morning in our passage. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18, and this morning we'll look at verses 21 through 35 together. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think the the main point of this passage is, is fairly clear, really straightforward and set out for us. The main point of this passage to us this morning and to the readers back when Matthew wrote this and to those when Jesus first said these things is this. We ought to forgive others as God has forgiven us. We ought to forgive others as God has forgiven us. As we study this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts around two points that that correspond to the two parts of that main point. So as we consider that we ought to forgive others, we'll we'll think about point number one, the duty of forgiveness. As we think about that we must do this as God has forgiven us, we'll think about point number two, the depth of forgiveness. So point number one, the duty of forgiveness. We see that in verses 21 through 22. And point number two, the depth of forgiveness. We see that in verses 23 through 35. Point number one, the duty of forgiveness. We come to this last passage here in chapter 18, this this chapter where Jesus has been instructing his disciples on how his people are to live among one another as the new people of God, as God's ecclesia, his, his church. They are to be a humble people, not concerned with their own greatness, as the beginning of the chapter showed, but dependent upon their great God for help and and strength. Not only are they to be a humble people, they are to be a holy people, rooting out sin from their lives, metaphorically gouging out eyes and tearing off limbs, going to drastic extremes to eradicate every temptation to sin. 
Not only are they to be a humble and a holy people, they are to be a helping people. Helping each other stay on the path to heaven. Helping each other follow Jesus, even if that means confronting each other when they're in sin and calling each other to repentance. In the passage we looked at last week, Jesus started off telling his disciples in verse 15 what they are to do if their brother or sister sinned against them. Go confront them. Tell them their fault with the hope and the aim of winning their brother. And then laying out in progressive steps what to do if that first step wasn't successful. Well, here in this last section of the chapter, the disciples have heard Jesus' teachings, but they have some follow-up questions. Specifically, one of them has a question. And surprise, surprise, it's Peter. Verse 21 tells us, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, it's easy to criticize old Peter here. There he go again, speaking out of place and blurting out something bogus. I mean, jog your memories back to the last chapter where we were a few months ago. In chapter 17, Peter had been granted access to see the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking to Moses and Elijah. And what did Peter do? Open that big mouth of his and blurt out, Lord, let's, let's make three tents. We got a little one here for you and a little one here for Moses and another little one here for Elijah. As if they were all on the same level. Till the Lord shouted down from heaven and shut down that conversation. Peter, we think, should just shut his mouth. Well, maybe not. Because Peter also speaks in Matthew's gospel to get clarification. Back in chapter 15, Jesus was teaching in a parable. And Peter asked in, in Matthew 15, verse 15, explain the parable to us. And here, after Jesus has, has just finished teaching on dealing with your brother's sin, well, Peter asked a logical question. Well, how often will he sin and I must forgive him? You know, I think some of us are shocked by this kind of behavior because we've grown up in families where questions were discouraged. Questions about house rules, questions about family background, questions about finances, and especially questions about God. That showed a supposed lack of faith. But family, true faith asks questions. Faith seeks understanding, especially if that faith is not meant to be some merely intellectual ascent, but a faith that leads to concrete life changes. Peter, upon hearing Jesus talk about dealing with sin, asked, Lord, what does that look like in practice? Is there a limit? I think it shows that Peter understands Jesus' previous teaching in the last section. Not to be so much about putting people out of the church. That's the last resort, the more rare occurrence. More often, what Peter understands is that we must put up with 
each other's failings. Pursue one another in love and call on each other to repent. And it'll happen. People will repent and turn from sin. But then a brother or sister might fall again and again and again. There's a realistic view here that sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance will be an ongoing cycle in a Christian's life. Does that surprise you? If it does, it might be because we have an ill-informed view of repentance. Some of us view repentance only as the ultimate end of a sinful action. So to repent of lying is to never lie again. To repent of speaking harshly is to never speak harshly again. To repent of drunkenness is never to get drunk again. To repent of sexual immorality is to never lust again. Friends, praise God that sometimes repentance does look like never indulging in a specific sin ever again. But often it looks like the posture of our hearts towards sin being grieved by it, hating that you succumbed to it again, and fighting to progressively stop doing it. That is, repentance, true repentance, doesn't simply concern habits, but heart postures. Someone can commit the same sins over and over, perhaps less frequently, perhaps with less intensity, and yet be repentant. Because a repentant life is not a straightforward, upright line. It's more often a crooked, jagged line. Ultimately pointing upward, but with some deep dips here and there. Your brother or sister, genuine Christians, will sin. Will sin against you. Sin will show up in interpersonal relationships. I think it's a, a subtle reminder that the Christian life is larger than Sunday services. I mean, it's possible, but pretty improbable that we'd sin against one another in this little hour and a half, or depending on how long I preach, two-hour window on Sunday mornings. But the church isn't a service in a sanctuary. The church is a sanctified people living life together throughout the week. And you put people, any kind of people, close together in close proximity and sharing each other's hearts and lives with each other, and there will be conflicts. Again, there's, there's a realism about that. But Peter understands from Jesus' teaching that even when there is sin, personal sin against me, what must my response be? I must forgive them. Forgiveness is not that you just forget the incident, forget it ever happened and sweep it under the rug. Forgiveness is acknowledging that you've been wrong, sinned against, and yet not holding it against the other person, but rather extending yourself to them in a way that the relationship can be reconciled. We must forgive. Peter understands that. He just wants to know how often up to seven times? 
he was being generous. The rabbis of the day, in their writings, they say it up to three times. They wrote, if, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven. We've got similar understandings of limits of forgiving a person in our own society. Our legal system has three strikes rules against repeated offenders. Even in our more informal outlook on life, we have sayings, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That is, you might hurt or get over on me once, but it ain't going to happen twice. Peter, though, takes a more expansive approach. He takes the rabbinic, limit, uh, rabbinic limits of forgiveness three times, multiplies it by two, and adds one. Lord, shall we forgive seven times? Surely that's sufficient. But look at Jesus' response in verse 22. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The structure of the wording there sounds a lot like what Jesus says over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, going on to show that his standards for, for righteousness far exceeded the scribes and Pharisees' standards. Here, Peter seems to, to exceed the standard limit for forgiveness. And yet Jesus says, but I say to you, it's, it's not seven times that you should forgive, but, but 77 times. It's not meant to be taken as a set number. That is, don't go on your iPhone and open up the notes app and start scribbling in all the times you've forgiven your spouse or your child or a fellow member. One sister joked to me this week that her and her husband hit 77 times in their first year of marriage. Many of us know the feeling. Now, 77 is meant to express an innumerable amount. Seven is the number often used in the Bible to express completion or fullness. Well, Jesus says, seven, seven. That's how often. Just keep going. Let it be complete. If you started a new Bible reading plan at the beginning of this year, these numbers here in verses 21 and 22, seven and 77 might sound familiar because you find them in the beginning chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, a man named Lamech boasts to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Here is Jesus talking to a Jew, Peter, who would know the Genesis account well. He says that as thorough and complete as Lamech sought vengeance against those who wronged him, so Christians should seek forgiveness towards those who wronged them. Seventy-sevenfold. That's to say God's people should look differently than the world. The world looks for payback to those who wronged them. Christians look for ways back to restore the relationship 
with those who've wronged us. We forgive them. Well-meaning and seemingly generous as it might have been, Peter's idea of a set tally of sins at all was off course. Jesus says, rip up the list. There is no limit to how much you must forgive. You, you know, this whole concept of forgiving one another is simply a subset of loving one another. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that famous love passage, talks about love being a bunch of things. It is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he also says this, love is not resentful. Or in the original Greek, it does not count up wrongdoings. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's what Jesus is saying here. That the people of God, God, are to be a people who love one another. He says elsewhere that the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And part of what love looks like is forgiving one another. So is that the picture that our lives portray? Forgiving each other often. Does forgiveness mark your marriage? There's undoubtedly sin there. But is there forgiveness? How do you respond to your spouse's sin? Husbands, do you give your wives the cold shoulder? The silent treatment? Teach her not to disrespect you ever again by distancing yourself from her. Wives, do you respond to your husband's sin? When they put you down with their words or pursue and prioritize other things above you, how do you respond? Do you stop cooking for them? Stop sleeping with them as a form of punishment? Give them a taste of what life will be like without you? Have you grown so tired of him or her doing the same things over and over and over again that you're ready to just end it, check out? Maybe not officially, you won't sign nothing, but mentally, you're done. That might be what your heart is telling you to do. But friends, what does the Bible say? Forgive over and over and over. Does forgiveness mark your relationships with other members in the church? Or are there some members that have so ticked you off of what they said or did months ago or even years ago that you still hold some resentment towards them in your heart? Has, has someone made some insensitive comment towards you? Maybe some well-meaning but ill-placed remark about your singleness or childlessness. Or someone gossiped behind your back and you found out about it. And you've hardened your heart towards them. Maybe you avoid them. Maybe your interactions are short and cold towards them. And you feel justified in those actions. But friends, what does the Bible say? Forgive them. 
over and over and over. Release the offense and bitterness to God and be willing and eager to reconcile with the person. Maybe you're reading this command here and and thinking this is just unfair, unrealistic, undoable and impossible. Because you know the real hurt and deep division, deep mistrust that exists in relationships where people have sinned against you. And and you've made up in your mind to go into self-protect mode. Certainly not to forgive them. It feels better. You are honest to harbor resentment. It feels kind of good, though you hate it, but it feels kind of good to replay over and over and over in your mind what others have done to you and to justify your hardened response. But Jesus calls us here to a different response, to forgive. Knowing it's not easy, knowing it's hard, knowing it's by all means impossible if it's up to us to forgive all faults, to forgive often, but we can carry out this duty of forgiveness because of the depth of forgiveness we receive from God. Which leads to point number two, the depth of forgiveness. The depth of forgiveness. Jesus could have ended his response to Peter in verse 22 with the, the straightforward command to forgive without limit. Peter had asked a question, and Jesus had plainly answered it. Business done. But Christ is kind, isn't he? He doesn't just tell us what we must do. He moves our hearts with motivations to carry out his commands. He means to stir our affections and provide us with spiritual fuel to forgive. And he does so through this parable here in verses 23 through 35. A parable is simply a story that uses imagery to to give a surface understanding, but that has deeper spiritual meaning under it. Here in this parable, Jesus uses it to illustrate the kind of far-reaching forgiveness that he's calling Peter, and by extension, us to. And that God, the king and ruler over all, has shown to the people under his redemptive rule, in his kingdom. Look there, verses 23 through 27. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This king here has a servant who who owes him, who is in debt to him. And already you see some signs of how this parable points to us, relates to us. God is our great king. And we are under him, in his service, and in debt to him because of our sins. 
Because we've not been content with our status under God as king, but we have set up ourselves as our own kings. We've sought to live life our own ways. And our sin has put us in the deficit of a right standing with God. We owe him, as this servant here owes the king, a great amount. The end of verse 24 says the the servant owes 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is not a skill or an ability, as we so commonly use the word. It's a monetary unit. And and it's not merely the equivalent of a dollar. So 10,000 talents isn't comparable to $10,000. If you've got an ESV, you'll, you'll find a footnote at the bottom here that says that one talent is equal to 20 years worth of wages. One talent, one talent, worth 20 years of paychecks. And this servant owes 10,000 talents. It is an extraordinary amount. The debt is so big that verse 25 says he could not pay it. Of course he couldn't. Nobody can. It reminds us of the great cost of our sins. Every one of them very high. Every one of them adding to our debts. So that there is an incalculable amount of judgment against us. And there's no way that we can pay. Our good works are insufficient funds. They can't settle the account. Our good intentions won't put a dent into the debt. We are utterly helpless, unable to do anything necessary to make the payment to satisfy God. And so we, like this servant, deserve judgment. Here the king orders the man to to be sold, along with his wife and children and everything else he has. This was a common practice in the ancient Jewish world, as punishment for those who could not repay their debts. And if the penalty sounds harsh, not only the man, but his wife and his kids sold into service, it just speaks again to how great the debt was and how severe the judgment for failure to pay it. You see, sin seems small in our eyes. A little white lie a tiny amount of dirt, a short time away from church. And the penalty of sin seems small. We see no immediate effects now, so so we think that our rebellion against God isn't really that bad. God is not really one day going to hold us accountable. He wouldn't do that. Jesus is using this parable to help us look at things Through God's lenses, every one of our sins incurs a devastating judgment. Upon this man receiving his sentence, he does the only thing reasoning people should do. He pleads for mercy. He falls to his knees, verse 26 says, humbles himself and implores, begs before the king, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. Now, of course, it's a bogus statement. A last-ditch effort. 
but people say and do anything to save themselves. I mean, the man owes 10,000 talents. And as we've noted, a single talent is worth 20 years' pay. So for the servant to pay back everything, everything, he'd have to live and work for 200,000 years. To put that in perspective, the longest life we ever see recorded in the Bible is that of Methuselah, who lived 969 years. So, so this servant would have to live the equivalent of roughly 206 times longer than Methuselah if he'd even have a chance of paying the king back. His plea was not realistic. It was totally undoable. But it was born out of desperation. This helpless man who was in the wrong had nothing else to lean on. Nowhere else to call out for help than on the mercy of the king. Just as we, who are in the wrong, whose debt of sin is stacked so high against us that we have nothing else to lean on, nowhere else to call out to other than the mercy of God. Well, what will will the response be? What would it be with your creditors? Try calling Wells Fargo or Fannie Mae at the first of the month, or whoever else you have for your home loan, and plead with them to just have patience with you to pay back what you owe. And that's just with your monthly note, not the total amount of your loan. They might give you a grace period until the 15th of the month to pay. But then they want all their money. You might even be able to get some, some other help. Because of COVID, you might be able to get deferments or some other help to delay things. But ultimately, that debt is going to have to get paid when they say, or else you will reap the consequences. Beg all you want for patience, but they're going to look at that bottom line figure and at your track record of being unable to pay and at your bank statements of your inability to pay, and they're going to put you out your house. Well, here we have a king who has all authority. He is the sovereign. His word is final. You can't go anywhere else but to him for assistance. And he has decided to settle his account, to balance his books. This servant has made his best play, his, his only play, really, to save himself and his family from punishment, unrealistic as it was. And how does this king respond? He doesn't laugh in his face for this ludicrous proposal. He, he doesn't toy around with him, calling him to, to calculate the exact amount of years it would take for you to, to, to render and able to reach the, the stated pr promise to, to pay back everything. He doesn't immediately cut off the proceedings and cast him away. Verse 27 says he showed pity for him. That word pity is the same word we see translated as having compassion on someone in other places in Matthew. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we read, when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion or pity for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, verse 14, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion or pity on them and healed their sick. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion or pity on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. When Jesus sees people in need, no matter if it's self-inflicted or not, what happens? His heart goes out to them. And he helps them. He gives them what they most need. It's the same that happens with this king here, representing God the Father. And make no mistake about it, that the Father and the Son, though distinct persons, have the same essence and the same heart for their people. It's not this kind of false dichotomy you sometimes hear that the God the Father is harsh and Jesus is gentle. No, both have compassion. God's very nature, as Delano read for us earlier in the passage, is to be, even after his people repeatedly over and over and over keep sinning against him, his very nature is to be merciful and compassionate. And his nature is indivisible. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have pity and compassion on their people. The king, verse 27, says, out of pity for the servant, released him and forgave him the debt. Notice, he provides far more than the servant asked or expected. The servant asked for time to pay the debt back. But the king knew that more time would not solve the problem, would not settle things. So the king decided to eat the loss. And because his heart was soft towards his servant, he forgave him every single bit that he owed. Friends, this is amazing mercy and amazing grace. Not giving this servant what he did deserve, and instead giving him what he did not deserve. Not only release, but forgiveness. Total freedom. Your debt has been cleared. No record that you owe anything. As a matter of fact, debt? What debt? It's the same kind of amazing, abundant mercy and grace that God the Father has shown us in Christ. He's not given us the immediate judgment that we deserve because of our sins. But instead, out of pity, compassion for us, he's forgiven us. You and me, dead in our sins, underwater in debt because of them. God has forgiven us. Quite simply, it's amazing. It's why the psalmist in Psalm chapter 130 exclaims, if you, O oh Lord, should mark or count or tally up iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Who would be able to repay? Who would give an account? Nobody. 
But with you, he says, there is forgiveness. Friends, do you know? Have you experienced the deep and far and wide and wonderful forgiveness of a loving God? Have you considered the great debt that was owed to him? The great penalty that should have been yours, eternal death. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23 tells us, is death. And yet, God has forgiven all your debts, all your sins, every single one of them in the past. From your time as a baby rebelling in your heart up until the sins you did this morning. He forgives you all the sins in the present, the, the sinful things that might be floating around in your hearts even right now as I speak. He forgives you every single sin in the future. Every sin that you will commit, God has covered it. He's marked them all as paid in full. And have you considered how they've been paid? How they've been forgiven? God has not simply randomly X'd them out of his account ledger. He has not swept them under a rug. He is a holy and a just God, and he cannot and will not do that. But what has he done? He has regarded our helpless estate. And he sent his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to shed his precious blood for us all. To give his life as a ransom for us. To buy us back out of slavery and bondage to sin and death. And to give us the eternal life that we all so desperately need. Jesus died in our place for our sins. But he rose up from the grave. Showing that his death was sufficient payment to pay for every single one of our sins. And there's no more wrath. After Jesus' redemption. There's no, nothing else to pay after Jesus purchased us. He satisfied all of God's demands. And he calls all of us now to turn from our sins. And to trust in him. That we might have the full forgiveness of our sins. Complete clemency. And eternal life with God forever. Friend. Will you understand the deep, deep trouble you're in this morning before a holy God? The deep, deep depth that you're in this morning, and will you turn? Will you plead for his mercy and trust in his provision of salvation for the payment of your sins in Christ? Friends, I don't know all that life has entailed. I don't know everything that's gone on in your life, but I know that your sins, like mine, are very great before a very great God. Perhaps they're so great, so heinous that others can't forgive you. Perhaps they're so wretched and so entrenched that you can't forgive yourself. But that doesn't matter at all. God can forgive you. And he desires to forgive you. Amen. Call out to him today for mercy. Amen. You will not meet his meanness. You will meet his mercy. Amen. You will not meet his grumbling. You will meet his grace. You will not meet his leaving you. You will meet his love. Amen. He will rescue you and forgive you. Perhaps even now. In your seat, you can be silently praying. God save me. Forgive me for all the wrongs I've done. 
I cannot pay the debt. But Jesus Christ has paid them all for me. Talk to someone around you after service. Come talk to me at the door here. We'd love to help you know the forgiveness of God for yourself. These verses here are meant to leave us in awe at the ocean of overflowing love that God has shown us in forgiving the massive debt of our sins. But his amazing act of forgiving us obligates us then to forgive others. And we're meant to be in just as much shock, just as much awe when we fail to do that. For it shows that we have not fully comprehended the great forgiveness we've been shown. I mean, look here at verses 28 through 30. We read that this same servant went out away from the king's presence and and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. This is not the follow-up we expected. We expect the, the next scene here to show this servant going to live a wonderful life, generous and gracious and compassionate to others, just as the king had been so generous and gracious and compassionate to him. But instead, we read that as soon as he's back in his own environment, around his everyday folk, his heart turns hard towards him. He comes upon a fellow servant here who, who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius was the equivalent of one day's wages. So it's not a small amount here. It's about a hundred days worth of, of work that's owed. But it's far less than what the servant owed the king. It represents exactly one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he owed. But where he was shown charity, he repays with ruthlessness. I mean, he chokes this Bama out. He chokes him out. It's crazy. Chokes him out. The, The same hands that just lay flat on the ground as he bowed down, pleading before the king for patience. Those same hands are now wrapped around another man's throat, demanding, pay me what you owe me right now. And like he had done, this fellow servant then pleads, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And in this case, it's reasonable. It's likely that he could pay him back. It's reasonable to think that he could have worked hard enough and long enough to pay back 100 days worth of work. Far more reasonable than this servant's previous proposal to the king to pay back 200,000 years worth of work. The details of the events, with their marked similarities, should have sparked in the servant's mind the compassion and forgiveness that he'd just been shown. When this fellow servant pleads, Instead of showing pity like the king, this servant demands justice. He will have his rights. He shuts up his heart 
instead of extending it out through this man. He refuses his pleas and sends him to prison. We should be shocked, appalled at his hard-heartedness. The, the, the other fellow servants in verse 31 are, they are distressed and went and told their master, the king, all that had happened. But before we move too quickly to join them in their distress, let's sit here and see how we're more joined with this man in his display of an unforgiving heart. I mean, how quickly is it that we go from basking in the wonders of God's forgiveness to quickly showing a cold, calloused mercilessness to others around us? I mean, you leave your sanctified quiet time in the morning floating on cloud nine as you meditate on God's great forgiveness to you in Christ. But you go into that kitchen and one of your kids makes some mistakes and drops something on the floor and you tear into them like a lion out of a cage. Preaching to myself here. You leave church on Sundays, maybe today. Your heart moved by God's great mercy to you. But you got to go see them co-workers tomorrow. And if you just sense in the slightest, smallest degree that they've slighted you in some way or tried to throw some shade or throw you under the bus, you're ready to wreck their lives. You might not physically choke them out, but you allow hatred for them to choke your heart. So that what comes from you to others is not the great mercy and compassion and kindness that you've received, but the wrathful, punitive attitude that you should have received. You demand from others what God should have demanded from you. Full repayment for every offense. And friends, God will demand it from you if you don't forgive others. The king, in verse 32, having learned about this servant's merciless treatment to another, summons him again before him. He, he doesn't see it as some small offense, something not concerning him, and so he'll let it go. No, he calls him, and he reprimands this man, you wicked servant. Friends, that's the moral description of an unforgiving heart, regardless of what you might call it. Simply looking out for yourself being guarded, just being a demanding person, not wanting people to get over on you and get a free pass. God calls it wickedness, especially when you've received so much of his kindness. The king says here, I forgave you all that debt. He knows how massive it was. I forgave you all of that debt you owed because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The answer is, of course you should. We see the principle here that products of God's mercy and grace should be pipelines of God's mercy and grace. That is, we receive from God mercy and grace so that that mercy and grace can flow through us to others. 
God's mercy to us is to be a model for our mercy to others. It's to be the motivation for our mercy to others. As the Apostle, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Again, these are no easy tasks, seemingly impossible tasks, but Paul adds, we're to do these things, forgive one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, how does that transform your relationships? Your parents or siblings may have done and said some horrible things to you, but they pale in comparison to what we've done to God, to the sins we've racked up against him. And yet, he forgave us. Your spouse may do and say some incredibly hurtful things to you. But they don't come anywhere close to what you've done against God. To the sins that daily you commit against him. And yet, he in Christ forgave you. So, saints, we, we don't need to minimize the bad, wrong, deeply sinful things that people do and say to us. They are terrible, and we are human, and so they hurt. We feel them. We don't need to minimize that. What we need to do, though, is to magnify the grace of God to us, Amen. forgiving all the bad, all the wrong, all the deeply sinful things that we have done. And through meditating on the supernatural way God has responded to our sin and in acting out of the supernatural new hearts that he's given us, we can and we should forgive others of the comparably small ways they've wronged us. And this failure to forgive brings ultimate judgment. The king orders in his anger, in verse 34, the servant to be delivered to the jailers, literally the torturers, until he should pay all his debt, which he never could. And what we have here, what's in mind here, is, is eternal torment, is eternal judgment in hell. Despise God's forgiveness, and you ultimately won't receive it. Fail to live out horizontally what you've received from God vertically, and you will fail to live eternally. At least not with God. Jesus explains in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It bookends Peter's initial question in verse 21. How often must I forgive my brother? Considering the depth of the forgiveness you've received, Jesus responds, an incalculable amount of time for an incalculable amount of sins. And do so from a willing heart because of the incalculable mercy God has shown you. Jesus means to move us to forgive by reminding us of the great forgiveness we've been shown and of the great judgment that will be ours if we don't forgive. So, saints, who is it today that you 
need to forgive. Who is it today that you must ask forgiveness from? Humbly pursue it. For God pursued and forgave us. And in him, we must do the same. May God give us help and grace and strength to live the kind of lives that mark the marvel of his majestic grace to us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he is a God who with all the debt that we owe sends another to pay for everything so that we don't have to demand anything from anyone else but can freely give as God has freely given us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that cuts us and convicts us, but that also comforts us and encourages us. Lord, we pray that you would use your word. Would you remind us of the marvelous grace that is ours in Jesus? Would you remind us that, that we are children who are weak, but you are strong? Remind us of our debt, but that Jesus has paid it all. Lord, give us joy to live out lives that don't seek from others all payment for what they've done wrong to us, but can actively and lovingly forgive them. Help us to be a church that lives like that. Help us to be husbands and, and, and wives and parents that live like that. Help us to be co-workers and neighbors that live like that. And when people ask, how can you forgive even murderers who killed your family members? Let us say like those who sat in that courtroom a few years ago. Because God has forgiven us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.